everyone. Welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. We're reading through the Bible this year, and on this show, we take some time out from reading through the Bible, and we discuss big topics that pop up from our weekly reading. And we also aim to discuss and answer some viewer questions that you send us as well through the comment section uh, on YouTube and also through email at hello at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. So if you have questions, feel free. We love to discuss them. But uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Corey and I'm here with Matlock. Hey, hey, Matlock. What's going on? Well, lots of stuff, actually. We've got, <laughs> yeah. we've got lots of stuff going on. So yeah. why don't you let everyone know what we, big were, week. what we were supposed to read. Yes. So you're supposed to read Luke 19 to John 11. Yes. Now, if you didn't, that's okay. Because a lot of people know these parts. It's a very famous... Uh, the Gospels. Of, yeah. It's the Gospels, right? As we've been going over it, over it. And there's a lot of famous questions that come out. Big questions yes. that come out of this. So questions regarding what is the bread of life? Can you see the face of God and live? And eternal security. So big questions. So many big questions that we might not have time to answer our big question, which is a secret. So we'll know. That's the surprise. <laughs> see, on my sheet, it says no big question. And then right before we 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 started recording, Malik said that he had a surprise for me. And I didn't. I, so that must be what it is. It, it, it could be what if it is. If we have time. It could be what it is. It could is. be what it is. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, Cor- <laughs> so we got a lot of big questions, as okay. we know, right? So yeah. we're going to see if we can answer this well, as best as we can. Yes. Corey, agreed. let's start off. Okay? Let's do it. This is in relation to John 1. 18 and Genesis 20, uh, 32, verse 30. Yes. This is from Paula. There seems to be a contradiction between Genesis 32, 30 and John 1, 18 in regards to seeing the face of God and being able to live. Can you explain? Right. Okay. So in John chapter one, the apostle John, who is believed to have written John, he is kind of giving his theological overview mm. of the purpose and the ministry of Christ. And you said John 1.18, so let's read that. Okay, so um, John says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So talking about Jesus um, Jesus there and, and God the Father. Um, then also Genesis 32.30. I do believe this is talking about Jacob. Uh, let's see. Yes, this is when Jacob wrestles with God. That's um, the interpretation there. But let's see. Okay, Genesis 32, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Uh, so the idea here is that Jacob believed that he had seen God face to face. He had recognized this manifestation of God, had asked God to bless him, and and he did. And, and he was renamed um, into Israel by God at this point. So is it a contradiction that Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered? And then John, the apostle John, uh, says that no one has ever seen the face of God. So the first thing that I want to note is the continuity between these two passages, which is really interesting, where Jacob believed that he should have died because he had seen God face to face. Because he goes, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Uh, and then this concept in John that no one has ever seen the face of God because if they had, they would have died. All right. Now, it's really interesting because if we if we jump over to John chapter 6, Jesus talks about this this issue as well. So we're going to confuse it a little bit more maybe before we straighten it up. 
So in John 6, my bookmarks are falling out here. John 6, verse 46, um, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and read 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus in this is claiming that no one has seen God except him. Only he has seen the true face of God. All right, then let's bring some clarity from another situation in Exodus. That's Again, it's another pretty famous one because it's, it's really interesting. Exodus 33? Yeah. There we go. We're jumping over to Exodus 33. Um, and we're going to go from 18 to 23. So Moses asks as a friend of God, God calls Moses, his friend to see his face. Moses wants to see God. He's heard God. He's spoken with God. He's seen the glory of God, uh, in, you know, he's seen a manifestation of God, um, on Mount Sinai. Now he wants to see God face to face. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And so then, um, oh, I guess I, I said I would read to, to 23, but I'll just summarize it. So then God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and covers him and and shows him part of his glory, but not his full glory. So the answer to this conundrum seems to be that no one can see the fullness of God and live except for Christ, because Christ was with God. He is God. He's part of the Trinity, right? That's part of the theology of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So Jesus is part of the Trinity. Therefore, he was the only one who has seen the fullness of God's glory, the fullness of God's face, and yet lived because he is one with God. Um, but then when he came down in his, in his physical manifestation here on earth, he was able to still claim that Okay, so I mean, That's good I, so I think another another area that we can go to, uh, because when you're talking about Genesis 32, why did Jacob, who did who then did Jacob see if not a manifestation of God? And the Orthodox Christian teaching on this is that Jacob did see a manifestation of God, mainly the angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And we see this figure pop up uh, a few times in the Old Testament, and it is not a normal angel because normal angels or messengers of God that are heavenly beings, um, they they do appear in the text, but every time they do and someone tries to worship them, they say, stop, I'm just a messenger I am not God, do not give me worship. But the angel of the Lord or this manifestation of God in, in a physical form does accept worship. So we see that in Genesis um, in Genesis 32 with Jacob, where he accepts this praise from Jacob and he accepts Jacob's identification of him as God. We also, you can go to um, Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham, where men show up and Abraham recognizes something special about these men and so makes them this big feast. And it turns out it's God talking with him. Um, you know, 
what does that look like? We don't know, but there is a physical manifestation of God. And another area that we can jump to here is Joshua chapter five. So right as the Israelites are about to go in uh, and defeat Jericho and begin this conquest of Canaan, it says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And the only, only other time thus far in the scriptures where we've gotten that take off your sandals for the ground where you were standing is now holy is back when Moses was called to go back to Egypt and the manifestation of God came in fire on a bush, right? The burning bush. And the presence of God made that area sacred ground so that Moses had to take off his sandals. So we see that this angel of the Lord, there is something divine uh, and godly, this is some sort of manifestation of God. So that is how I would I would kind of confuse and then try to bring order to that question, Paula, is that no one no no one can right now see the full face of God, the full presence of God and live. And yet there have been manifestations of God uh, that people have, seen in the Old Testament, um, and even Jesus claiming that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So him as a manifestation of the Father. Yes. Okay. I was just about to read that. Perfect. John 14, verses 8 to 10. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Okay, so again, exactly what you're saying, the full glory versus concealed glory, yes, right? partial. And, and we saw the Exodus, he conceals, he's, you can see my back and my face, right? Mm -hmm. But also, it's not just, so we see that partial or, or that concealed um, glory. And at the same time, we also know that come... Uh, our glorification, you actually see the face of God. Right, the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to yes. bring up some some text for that because in Job we know when he's when he's being. Uh, I, I know I will see God with my with my own two eyes that I have now. Job says that, right? And then also in Matthew, uh, the beatific vision, um, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, right? And then also in Revelation 22 verse four, um, when he's talking about those who will worship God at the throne, they will see His face and his name will be on their foreheads. So the point here is that one day we will see God in glory. Yeah. Now, to what degree? I don't know, but since we're eternally there with God, seems like it seems thing. like the full thing. Yeah. So we have to be glorified in order for that to be happened. Yeah. That's kind of the idea. So you have yeah. to be saved, then glorified, right? the ascension process. Again, it's this, it's this concept of um, going back to the way things originally were where you get, it's never explicitly said that Adam and Eve saw the full glory of God, right. but it's it's implied that they knew God in a way that humans after them did not know God. And we yes. see God, you know, 
walking with them in the in the garden, the cool's gay, and yes, and all of those sorts of things. So then that was lost, and then the idea of the redemption story of the Bible is that that will be regained uh, when God, you know, recreates the heavens and the earth. Yeah, and that's and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So will you see the face of God and die? The answer is right now. <laughs> yes, the full thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, but God has allowed certain individuals to see parts of himself. That's right. In his mercy is, I think, the, yeah. the pointed answer. That okay, is. Matlock, let's, right. let's move on now. I have a question for you from right. John 6, verse 35. So the question is, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the bread of life? All right. All right. So let's, let's break this down. Sure. There's John, the overarching point that John is making is that Jesus is God. That's really important. Um, that is his, it's not really a thesis, but essentially that's one of his themes throughout the whole book. Jesus is God, okay? Um, these I am statements are all deific claims. So I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and the life, right? I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. Um, there's, there's several more. And also, because this harkens back to uh, uh, that time with Abraham and the time with um, Moses at the burning bush, where Moses is there and the angel of the Lord is inside the burning bush. And the as Corey was talking about, and uh, is I am that I am, or I am who I am, depending on your translation. And uh, everyone knows that that I am reference, right, is referring to God, mm -hmm. Yahweh. Um, and specifically, as he says um, in Exodus, Tell them, the Israelites, when Moses goes out, that I am sent you. So he even just says, my name's I am for short. I am who I am. I am that I am. I am for short. Tell the Israelites, I am sent you. And uh, Christ is using this I am language in so many other different facets to prove these things. So that's part of it. What does this mean? I am the bread of life. He's saying, I am God, right? So God is the bread of life is essentially what that means. Right, you yes. need God for life, yes. for true life. So, like contextually, I mean, today we have a really messed up—at least in the West—we have a really messed up view of food. Right, food keeps us alive, but we don't often think of it that way. We normally just think about it as pleasure or pain because we're trying to achieve a beauty standard. Right, we're not in a situation of uh, uh, food for survival um, normally. Right. Uh, it's not impossible to happen, but normally that's where we are. But in the ancient world, right, food was about enjoyment, but it was also very much, they were painfully aware of the need for food for survival because one drought, one famine could really wipe out a whole area of people. They didn't have the extensive, um, uh, as secure of a food source as we do today with, the, with all the trade that we're able to do around the world, especially in really wealthy countries. Okay, but bread really became synonymous with food itself because bread was such a staple. It was a way that you could preserve the calories. It was a way that you could get more calories and it was enjoyable. So um, bread really became synonymous for food itself as a whole, what sustains you. Uh, you know, it was, it was the staple of diet going very, 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 very far back um, in the ancient past. So that's, that's the concept as well, where when Jesus can say, I am the bread of life, he's claiming that he is what sustains life. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he's saying. And you're right. So that is at the crux of it. So if you think about these I am statements 
in broad terms. Okay, so when he says, I am the door, or I am the shepherd. Okay, yeah. So we know that when he says, I am the door, it doesn't mean he has hinges. It doesn't mean that he's, not he's, actual, he's a physical yeah. wooden door. Everyone knows this, okay? Mm -hmm. But he is a door. Yes. Like, he is the way, the truth, the life. You don't go to the Father except through him. Yeah. So he is functionally it's a, it's a and spiritually analogy. a door. Yes. yes. It's an yes. analogy. But he is literally a door at the same time. Like, he mm -hmm. is that. He's the gateway he by which you enter. He is way right. into heaven. There is yes. no, you can't go through those pearly gates unless you have Jesus Christ in your heart, right? That's the whole principle. Yeah. Anyways. So, so yes, he's a door. Is he a shepherd? Yes, he's a shepherd. Mm -hmm. Definitely functionally a shepherd, right? As he oversees the flock. Who? Believers. Mm -hmm. Right? Is he um, the resurrection, the life, and the way? Yes. Those are literal statements. Mm -hmm. In that case, it's not he's not just functioning. He's literally the resurrection. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important there. So it's like these I am statements are not just um, spiritual things in and of themselves as supposed to be distinct from physical things. Like the resurrection, we resurrected in our flesh. So that's really important. That these I am statements are, are, are spiritual, but they're, but they're overlapping with the physical in some way. Yes. Anyways. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say another element to that that Jesus himself brings up here in John is it's it's not just him claiming to be God. It's not just him claiming to sustain all life. It certainly is those things, but it's also him claiming to he he's he's looking back to a transformational event in Israel's history and that is the exodus and the wilderness wandering period so the idea that god rescued his people brought them out into the wilderness and then what happened there was no food so what did god do god provided manna bread from heaven and we know that this is what jesus is alluding to because in john 6 verse 41 john draws that out he says so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So he is claiming to be this new manna from heaven. And one of the reasons why that is so significant is because you'll notice, um, you'll notice a theme all throughout all of the gospels, not just in John, but certainly in John, where people are asking Jesus who he is. And people are asking John the Baptist, who he is because they are looking for the Messiah and they say, are you the prophet? Are you Moses? Are you Elijah? And the reason they're asking him if he's Moses, um, like if he has the spirit of Moses or if he's the prophet is because back in Deuteronomy 31, Moses said that he would rise, that God would rise up a prophet like Moses from among the people to lead the people. And then we know when we get into the later prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies that God is going to create a new covenant with the people. And this covenant is going to be arbitrated by someone. And so so the teaching was that there's going to be this messianic figure, this messianic prophet who is going to come and arbitrate a new covenant. And so Jesus here has associated himself, definitely, you know, his, his disciples did and the, and the apostles who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. Um, and, uh, they associate Jesus himself with this new Moses, uh, not Moses himself, but the fact that Jesus was fulfilling this role. He was the arbiter of a new covenant. Right. And so Jesus is hearkening back to the wilderness wandering time period. And he's saying, I am the manna that God has sent. I am your food. I am what is going to give you life in this wilderness. You eat me or you die. Right. Um, and so I, I don't, I think that's another element of this that yes. because Jesus brought it up himself, we would be remiss 
to not mention it, especially, especially when you look at also this ties in and I can't, I don't have tons of time to go into it, but it's something interesting for you guys to think about if you've never thought about it before. This is one of the reasons why the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 were, would have made such a splash because Jesus was able to feed. He was able to do this miracle of providing for people in the wilderness, just as God had done through Moses in the wilderness wandering time period. So that would have created quite a stir because of them waiting for this new covenant and this prophet like Moses. And when you take that, what does Christ say? But what does this mean? Is well, the the Pharisees' bread doesn't, uh, uh, what's it called? It basically is insufficient. Yes. And he compares the bread itself Mm -hmm. from his bread which can feed people yes, which to, is the the fer- to the pharisaical bread or to the uh, the current issues at the time yeah. that cannot. Yes. Right? And that and he relates that to teaching. Yeah. So it's really interesting you think about that. The deep meaning that goes inside the bread itself is related to teaching. It's related to doctrine in itself. That's really important too. So it's like there's a there's, there's multiple parallels and things to be drawn from that. But anyway, so I think that answers. I think so too. Yeah. Um, so I want to move on then. I, I want to kind of ask a follow-up question. It's sure. a little bit different. But also from John chapter 6. Okay, yes. Verse 55 this time. And this one is from Josh. And he asks, how should we understand John 6 verse 55? For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. All right. My, obviously, this is relating to communion. The Eucharist, right? The Lord's Supper, depending what denomination you are. Um, all right. So, and this has to deal with either real presence, is a memorial, is a symbolic. Is, is this is what this question is relating to? How should we understand this? Okay. Uh, I think because this is probably this is one of the this is a big deal. This is partly what divided the Western world, right? This is how the Protestant Reformation kind of came about. This is one of the big issues that was there. Uh, how should we understand a real presence, or how should we not, or should it not even be there at all, or whatever? This is a big contentious issue. Um, I think it's really important when we deal this, not to just, I think because we have a little bit of time, I'm going to read John 25 to 69. We're just going to read it because it is a contentious issue. And I think it's important for us to read, to kind of absorb what Christ is saying. Okay. Um, I'm just going to go for it. So let's start at verse 25 and I'll go to verse 69. Okay. Oh, and Brandon, if you're editing this, you because it's so long, you don't have to put the verses down, okay? So don't worry about that. All right, here we go. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. When they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will the will of, of him who sent me, that I should lose, lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one has come to me unless the Father who, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written to the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone ha has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, has whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, li for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that their fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where the, he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who did not believe and, and, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So sorry that that took so long to read. That I That's that, okay. Yeah, I wanted to read it because it is one of the most controversial subjects in the Christian world. And it's good just to read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hyper complex because obviously when you talk about the bread of life and his yeah. blood, he's talking about his sacrifices to come, right? Yeah. And obviously that's in relation to communion, right? And how and how does that work? Now the the, the struggle that people have with this is how does that work metaphysically? Like 
that's, that's essentially the struggle. Yeah. I am inclined that this is a deep mystery, and I don't like um, dogmatizing one view over another view. Yes. Having said that, I think that there's, I think that there is um, a bandwidth that some people can go too far outside of it, and that can lead that I don't think is right. Um, that's not my personal view on this. Um, now, I think I'm going to highlight one verse in particular after reading that that I think is worth noting, and that's verses, um, let's see now, 49 to 51. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. So a physical death. Yeah. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, right, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for life of the world is my flesh. So um, he's talking about his, his death, right? And his, obviously, his inevitable resurrection is what gives life to this whole process. But when he's talking about his people who won't die, he's talking about living in the spirit. But not just a disembodied spirit. Like, our flesh is going to rise again, too. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't, you can't actually separate the two. Because it's not, we don't have a spiritual resurrection. That's right. We have right. a physical resurrection. That's exactly right. So, so th that's the hope of our faith. Right. That is what inevitably, if you continue reading through the New Testament, which we're going to do this year... Um, we're gonna we're gonna get there, and we're gonna see the Christian teaching on. Yeah, some of us may die now, or, right. or, like until Christ comes back. We are gonna die until He comes back. Yes, and then just as He was resurrected from the dead physically, so we will be resurrected from the dead physically as well in a glorified body. So, uh, so it is both. Yes, uh, but but it's also important to say, like clearly, Jesus isn't saying you have to actually eat my physical body. He's not exactly. ripping off chunks of his actual flesh and right. giving it to us and telling us to drink blood. And that that became a derogatory slur against Christians in the er, in the late first and early second centuries yes, that it was. we see happening, where people were like, "Oh, they're just cannibals and things of that nature," because of celebrating the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And the language that surrounded That's it, right. Right? it was very offensive, um, but it was talking about a spiritual, a, a spiritual truth. So, and, and, and I think Jesus gets to that, you know, in verse 63, where he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and yes. life. And what's good, what's important to note there, some people I've seen comment said that, oh, the word flesh, I mean, the flesh is no help at all. In other words, being like, if you think fleshly, it's no help at all. Mm. At one point, yes, but also to the word the flesh there, mm -hmm. the, the definite article, can also be used in terms of just like physical matter. Uh, Paul talks about this where he goes, uh, I have more things to boast about in the flesh than Philippians. He goes, I he was, uses, Paul uses it both ways. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's like what I'm saying is you can't just say, oh, because you, know, you think about it fleshly, therefore it doesn't mean the flesh at all. I, like the way I see this is personally. I understand, I, I am on the persuasion that it's real presence, but there's many other, um, and I'm not fully settled on this yet in, in, my, in my studies, but there's many theories to how this works in real presence. Lutherans have their sacramental union. Anglicans, right? They have consubstantiation. Catholics have transubstantiation. So there's different, many different views. And Orthodox are like, it's a mystery. Somehow it's the true blood and true, uh, true uh, uh, body of Christ. Anyways. So there's something there. It, it is a deep mystery, and we don't know really quite how it works, but we know that it's about uh, uh, the, the spiritual things, because he's talking about the priority here is not in the flesh itself. It's in the spirit that gives life. And I think that's really important here. Well, well, well yeah. Go ahead. 
Yes. Uh, and, and I mean, like the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the reason why we do it is to remember this teaching. Well, yes, it, is to, it is to keep communion with God at, at the, the uh, through Jesus Christ at the front and center yes. of our relationship with God and of our lives. That's why we yes. do it. But, you know, it goes, when we look at Jesus's other teaching on this, I mean, my mind immediately goes to John chapter four with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, in verse 13 of John 4, it says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, speaking of the water of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then you jump over to John 14 and Jesus talks about the indwelling of the spirit that when yes. he goes to heaven, he is going to send the Holy Spirit, uh, that the third member of the Trinity, right? And, and, and who is going to indwell us and become this spring of living water, just as we see in Revelation and back in Ezekiel, this, this temple of God is envisioned of having springs of living water pouring out of it from the presence of God, yes. right? So the idea that, and this is fleshed out later by the Apostle Paul, this teaching of us becoming the temple of the Holy Spirit, both individually and corporately as the church, uh, the body of the church, that that God indwells us as if we are the Holy of Holies, right? And 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 Jesus is, that ties together with Jesus's teaching that the Holy Spirit comes within us, a spring of living water, so we'll never thirst again. So uh, that all ties in here. It, it definitely as well. does because he says you'll never thirst. And this idea that the relationship between blood and water is actually quite significant, typologically significant in the New Testament, because. You have a whole, like when Jesus is on the cross and they stab him, blood and water come out. Sure. They see, there's, a, there's an intimate relationship between the two. Water is known for sustaining life, yep. right? And, and, and uh, of the, the teaching, the Jewish teaching in the Old Testament is that life is in the blood. Exactly. And then wine, ironically, is a celebration of, so life. You, so of, of life and provision. Exactly. So then you, you, the, all those meanings and layers are now stacked on top of each other, right? Yeah. Um, so with, when it comes to this, uh, I think it's also healthy to know that like, no one's advocating cannibalism. Uh, I, no. I, and that's, that's really important. So even, even um, our uh, Roman Catholic brothers who advocate transubstantiation and they believe that it, it, it substantially turns the, the bread and wine turn into the flesh and blood of Christ, truly, right? Very truly and substantially. That is even an ontological metaphysical claim because the accidents or the appearance of it is still bread and wine. So in other words, it's not one for one flesh. It's at the deep ultimate level somehow transforms. Um, and to me, I'm kind of like, I, I personally don't see how that just isn't spiritual in and of itself because you, you can't physically tell, you can't take a DNA, DNA test, you can't put it under a microscope, it's always gonna look like bread and wine. Then it's and spiritual. Th then it, there's something spiritual about it in yeah. my head. So um, I, I just can't, I, I can't see a way around and, that. And it's but, not as if spirit, the spiritual world isn't real. No, and it's, it's not, not and, corporeal. And it, like we can feel it and touch it. But it is in the intimately connected to the physical. Sure. Like you can't, like when the spirit leaves the body, the person dies. Um, it is what animates the body. So there's, there's something about it. Um, either way, the point to be said here is that um, uh, we are to be partaking in communion uh, because Christ died for us. 
And this is part of the new covenant. Christ says the new covenant is in the blood. Mm -hmm. In his blood is the new covenant. So we are partaking in that. We're participating in Christ's uh, crucifixion. Uh, and we'll get there eventually. There's more to talk about this. I'm not fully settled on this. But 1 Corinthians 8 to 11 has that chunk has the most to deal with that, uh, about this issue. Um, and so I, I suppose when we get there, there might be more questions pertaining to that, about that. But in terms of this, I, um, I think, I think like, again, we're not talking about one for one flesh and blood. It just can't be because that's cannibalism. And everyone, <laughs> no, he's, it's it, definitely not. No, I know. No, I know. It's not even, no, I no, think. It's definitely no. not. <laughs> oh, sorry. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. His disciples weren't actually taking no. bites of him. He he broke bread and gave them bread. Yes. And so said... <laughs> the narrative context is, yeah. he says this, yeah. right, in the narrative. Yeah. And everyone's, and then even in John 14, they're all, he's all like, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, I'll speak plainly to you. I'm like, thank God. Thank God. You'll speak, finally speak plainly to us when the Holy Spirit comes. Yeah. Right? So that isn't, that's like, you know, so John 16, John 16. At the end there. So that is the overall context. Because the whole time, he's been, what does he say in John 16? He's been speaking in figures of speech. Well, and so and so they've been really struggling to understand him. But they're like, but we know you're the Messiah. Okay. We're just struggling to understand. But look, even without getting like down into the weeds. Yes. Because we're in the weeds right now. Sure. Of like church history and battles over spiritual versus yes. physical versus how real is real. It's too much. It gets, I'm, t I'm sorry, it gets ridiculous. I think it gets ridiculous. Sure. And, and, and we split over it and we, uh, it's just, it's just ridiculous. But when you think we, the, the Bible, when you pull back for a little bit, the Bible claims that God is the creator of the world. However, he created it, right? Is, is he created it. He, it then uses throughout the Old and New Testament, uses nature and physical reality, the, the systems of life on this planet, to teach us deeper truths. So him doing that and also being the creator of the systems that sustain life and reality means then that he has planted, he has created things to be a certain way so that he can teach us deeper truths about who he is. See what I'm saying here? See what I'm doing yes. here? So when Jesus says, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. If we just back it up and take it down to its simplest form, he's saying, you need food to live. Without food, you will die. You will no longer be here. But guess what food ultimately represents? Me. I am true food. Without me, you will die, spiritually and physically. And it's the same with drink. We know that without water, without drink, we will die as human beings. We need it. If there's a if there's a drought and all the water dries up, we die. Right. So at the very simplest of things, Jesus is saying the exact same thing happens to you if you don't have me spiritually and physically, because this world is going to be redone. So if yes, you take it down to its like yes, simplest that's ultimately form, what it's saying. Right. ultimately, Jesus right. is saying, you need me. Well, yes, of course. Right. I just, I like, after we get into the weeds, I like to bring it back because yeah, that's fine. we that's don't want to stay there. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think we kind of answered the question that it's not about it being flesh. Yeah. I think that's the important part. I said, I think, but I just, that's just how I speak. Yeah, it's not about, it's not cannibalism. Anyways. <laughs> Good it's, clarification. It's not cannibalism. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. But no Agreed. one thinks it is anyways. Anyways, yes. okay. Fair enough. So anyways, um, Corey, I have a question for you. Sure. Another big question. Awesome. All right, ready for this? 
I don't know. All right. <laughs> we'll you don't find know? Out. All right. So Dennis S. My wife and I really enjoy and appreciate your daily messages on TV. I have looked through your website and I have a question concerning your position on a certain issue, which is very important to us. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that a person can lose his salvation or do you believe that once a person is saved, it is forever? John right. 6 and John 10, for etc. Thank you for your excellent Bible studies. Right. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, okay. I'm assuming from John 6, you're talking about... So if we're talking about eternal security in John 6, what would that be about? I'm assuming you mean, you mean um, verse 64, where it says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. So John's setting up there, uh, that uh, Judas Iscariot is going to betray Jesus. But this idea that that Jesus knew that in advance, that even the disciples that he lost over this hard teaching, this kind of shocking teaching that he is the true bread and true, true drink, uh, that the idea is that he knew that some of them didn't really believe in him even from the beginning. Okay, and then John 10. Um, okay. John 10, they're at the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, uh, in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, this is verse 23, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So there's this idea um, that, that some Christians hold to that because of this teaching that it is impossible uh, once you have become a Christian to then lose your faith. Even if you walk away, God will bring you back. So that's the teaching of eternal security. Um, here, it doesn't talk about his sheep walking away. It talks about his sheep not being able to be snatched out of his hand. So this idea that you can't steal one of his sheep, if you kill him, it's still his sheep. You can't take their identity as his sheep. Uh, but then the question remains, can his sheep remove their identity? as the sheep of God. And some people would say no, and some people would say yes. So if we jump on over to Hebrews chapter six, this is where um, a lot of people will go. And we're, we're just gonna kind of go through some of these steps here scripturally to work through this issue. Uh, so Hebrews chapter six, I'm gonna read verses one probably to eight here. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, 
to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. I am going to keep reading here. We're going to go, here's verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so people who believe in eternal security will look at Hebrews 6 and they will say, they will interpret it and they will say, this is talking about people who were never really saved in the first place. I have a really hard time with that. Uh, and I could be wrong, but I have a really hard time with that based off of how I interpret scripture. What is the author of Hebrews trying to tell us here? And we see he qualifies um, the the he qualifies these people who have walked away from God in many many different ways. He says, uh, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's a lot of qualifications. Mm -hmm. To have the Holy Spirit, to have a share in the Holy Spirit, seems to me to be saved in the truest sense of the word. So if I'm going to stay, I, I have a really difficult time with this position of eternal security because of this, uh, because he, the author of Hebrews doesn't say, you know, someone who is a part of the church and then falls away from the church. No, he qualifies it with several things who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So this falling away means that they are no longer living in repentance to God. They do not want to repent. They have stopped repentance before God. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So they're, they're actively saying, I do not want a share in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. I do not repent. So this is an active rebellion. Uh, because I know that a lot of people get really concerned here when they read Hebrews 6 because there's this tendency to start to panic. Well, what then if I'm not saved? I sin. I sin. I'm not perfect. I don't follow Christ perfectly. That's not what Hebrews 6 is talking about here. There is an active unwillingness to repent about one's sin. Um, so, and, and, and hold on. The author yeah. of Hebrews even goes on to say, right? He goes, he goes, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
So there's, if there's this earnestness in you to follow God, you are okay. You have not lost your salvation. It's not something that you just like one day, oh, I lost. I didn't even realize well, and, I lost it. In earnest of full, of full assurance. Yes, there has to be this like active rebellion. And, and I don't think we can say it's impossible because of Hebrus chapter six. Uh, is there something you wanted to say as no, I did no, my there's, next No, there's a verse? whole, well, no, the, I was trying to look for it, but there's a whole bunch of other verses like where it is conditional, like, like yeah. so so long as you believe you are saved. <clears throat> yes. And I think what's important here is that you're not advocating, and here's what he's asking, do you believe in losing your salvation or eternal security? Yeah. You're not advocating losing your salvation because losing your salvation is the concept where if you make a mistake and sin, you therefore have lost it and then you have to repent to get it back kind of yeah. thing. So there's, um, Right, so it's like one is what you're advocating is forfeiting your salvation, which is the concept purposefully. of purposely rejecting, actively going against God. Yeah, I have no clue how that works, but it seems like it's possible based on the a lot. Of, there's a lot of textual evidence for it. You, it's almost like you have eternal security, um, but you can reject eternal security. <laughs> it's almost like it, it almost like you have security in Christ, yeah. but then you can just reject that um, by actively rebelling against God, yeah. sort of like Satan did. Anyway, so go ahead. Well, even John in 1 John 5 talks about, um, talks about a sin that leads to death. And I just want to read that to you. 1 John 5, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to back up and go 13 to 17. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, If you believe in the name of the Son of God, if you're repentant, you may know that you have eternal life, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked in him. So there's this communion with God in this, when we ask in his will, not out of our own selfish wills, but in his will, uh, there's gonna be answers. So then verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's this idea where we've got, we've got, we've got sin you know, there's the sin that Christians struggle with that we repent and, and, you know, we're not perfect and we live in a fallen world. And so we struggle with this and we repent. And as we repent, we can receive forgiveness. And it's not as if like you're, you're, um, you're here and you have salvation and then you sin and you lose salvation. And then you ask forgiveness and you have salvation and then you lose it. It's not that you have salvation, but you still need forgiveness, this ongoing repentance. But we're told there is sin that leads to death. And you know, in the context of the entire book of first John, and you should test me on this, uh, the, this, this death and life is referred to most often in first John as eternal death and eternal life. Right? So, um, the teaching seems to be here that there is sin that can lead to death. So this unrepentant, um, willful choice away from God. And I mean, when we go back to Romans. Idolatry and in its purest form. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we go back to Romans chapter 7. And, and we know, we know that that we sin. And so it's not as if when Christians sin, they're losing their salvation. We, we, we go to Romans chapter 7, right, with uh, Paul's famous teaching on this unwillingness. We have this 
this, we'll have this resolve in our mind, okay, I'm not going to sin again. And then we do because guess what? We're not perfect and it's a struggle, right? Um, let me see here. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my member in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. So Paul is just talking about this struggle that, but, but also that we are going to be redeemed, that there is an end to this struggle. And we know from other passages of scripture that we can be filled with the power of God and through the Holy Spirit to overcome different sins. So you don't just have to live in these patterns of sins, but we're not perfect. So those are just some thoughts on the concept of eternal security versus being able to lose your salvation. I do believe that, I think it's dangerous to teach. If I'm being honest, I'm really uncomfortable with teaching that no matter what you do, no matter how you live, once saved, always saved. I struggle with that because I see, I've, I, I, I know I have a lot of personal experience with people where that has taken them down a very, very dark path and it's been used and abused. Yeah. I, I... On the other hand, I see the dangers of, I see the manipulation that has happened in some communities where people will say, if you don't do this, then you are not acceptable. If you do this, then you're not acceptable before God. Or if you do this specific sin, then you can't come here. And, and, um, and, and, and so there's danger. Yes. It's this up and down and up and down. No, you you can't come here. You're not pure. You're not covered. Look, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. We don't depend on our own righteousness for salvation. That is Christ, right? That is all throughout the Bible, that teaching that we put on Christ's righteousness like a garment. Our salvation does not depend on our sin. It depends on our repentance to God and our and, and Jesus's righteousness. So I get that. What do you want to say? No, you're that's like, good. No, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm processing what you're saying and I, I agree 100%. I think the... Um, the danger is, is, yes, with people who have this theological system where they lose their salvation, let's say, once mm-hmm. a week and they get it back by going to church or whatever, um, that, that that creates a, a uh, what would you want to say, like a deep anxiety in people. And that's what people who have who believe in eternal security don't like. Yes. And the other side mm-hmm. of things, um, you also have people who believe you can form your salvation are like, look, you have false assurance on the other side. It's so one extreme for another extreme. Yeah. So I and I think you're right in in uh, distinguishing the the two extremes here, that because the, the text is very clear. You have the deposit of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, right? You have um, you know, as Paul's famous lines: "There's no height nor depth, right? They can take you from the uh, no angel or or Satan. Nothing can, can separate us from. No the one can God. snatch you from the right. Yeah. Exactly. And then it's like, well, it doesn't mention that you can't separate yourself. Right. <laughs> all right. So right. anyways, the point is that there's all this text suggesting that you yourself can choose to just throw it out, the, throw out the water. Yeah. Uh, th- throw the baby out with the bathwater somehow. I have no clue how that works. But I will say this. 
it seems like very much the case these aren't strong Christians. These are people who are perhaps weak and have a weak conscience and are, are you know, are um, uh, of weak faith and they're not str- being strengthened at all. That's kind of how I, I see this issue as like a, uh, a, a on the line here, not someone who's dedicating the faith and constantly working, but more so people who are just kind of wishy-washy and lukewarm. That's where this issue becomes really sticky. Yeah. And I don't think there is a blanket solution for it. There's no system I think we can rest upon, like you're saying. You can't be like, oh, you're saved because of this. And there is precedent for some people who might be saved. You know what we have? To, you, there, there is one thing that we can lean on. What's that? The goodness of God. Well, of course. What we know, Christ is the good shepherd. And a good shepherd takes care of a sheep. He, ta- he talks about that, right? That goes back to John, like, like uh, we, we were looking at here, Dennis. Uh, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He knows how to take care of his sheep. Um, so I, I think that we always have to come back and land and lean on trusting in God that he knows what he's doing rather than trusting on some arbitrary system or way of understanding salvation that that we've kind of put together based off of maybe not a, 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 a holistic view of all the scripture that talks about salvation, but only one or two verses. We can trust in Christ. We can trust in God to fulfill our salvation. So I think that really goes a long way. Um, I, I've had more conversations with people. If I'm being honest, I'm just telling you my life experience. I've had more conversations with people who believe in eternal security because they're scared of what not having eternal security looks like. And, and to that, we can have assurance. You know, we can have assurance that we're saved as we continue living our life with in relationship with God and in communion with the Holy Spirit, you know. And the love of, of, of brothers in Christ. Yes, and, and, and remembering that Christ is our good shepherd and living in repentance towards him and running the good race that the apostle Paul talks about. And as we do those things, there is assurance. And, and you know, even as parents sometimes, I've spoken to parents who are like, well, but my, but my child isn't following God or isn't serving God. Keep praying and trust God. Keep praying and trust God. Yeah. It is hard to trust God with those that we love, but we have to remember that he loved them first, he will love them last, and he loves them more than we can because his capacity to love is greater. So right. Those would just be some of the thoughts that I No, that's good. I think share. we have to wrap up now, but I, I think, do. yeah, there's more to talk about on this subject, but I think the main point has been hit. And yeah. I think that's good. Okay. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, let us know what you think down below. Feel free to agree and disagree. I love reading your comments. Uh, Yeah, if you have any uh, questions or comments, even for future episodes, pop them down below. And until next time, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.